0: O God who set us free
1: from our captivity Your hand is strong to save You split the raging sea You crush our enemies Your hand is strong to save The Lord our God is mighty and bad Afraid, his hand upholds us through our trials. Our God is strong to say, Here in this desert place. We're carried by your grace, because your hand is strong to stay. When in the promised land, we'll see your perfect plan, because your hand is strong to stay. The Lord our God is mighty in battle, we are not afraid. us through our trials our god is strong to save above all death above all life above the battles that we fight above any other name our god is strong to save above the heavens and the earth above the rulers of this world above any other name our god is strong to say the lord our god is mighty in battle we are not afraid his hand upholds us through our trials our god is strong to say, The Lord our God is mighty in battle. We are not afraid. His hand holds us through our trials. Our God is strong to say. All
0: right, let's turn around and say hello to one another. Just hello, no touching, no touchy-feely.
1: you have called us out of darkest night into your glorious light that we may sing the wonders of the risen christ may our every breath retell the grace that broke into our strife with Love and deepest joy with endless light. May the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad. All your blessing comes that we may praise, may praise the name of Jesus. All the earth is yours and all within, each harvest is your own. And from your hand we give to you to make Christ known. May the seeds of mercy grow in us for those who have not heard. May songs of praise build lines of grace to spread your word. May the peoples praise you, let the nations be glad. All your blessing comes that we may praise, may praise the name of Jesus. our holy privilege to declare your praises and your name to every nation, tribe and tongue your church proclaim may the peoples praise you let the nations be glad all your blessing come that we may yeah mm-hmm. Let the nations be glad, all your blessing come, that we may praise, may praise the name of Jesus.
0: All right, thanks for singing, you may be seated.
2: Thank you, praise team. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Garden Chapel on this very bright and sunny, because it's coming right off that car and in my face, summer day. We are glad that you are here joining us uh, to worship. Uh, We do have a few things that we want to mention in your bulletin, so if you would take those, we'll do announcements, and then we will do our kids' sermon. Um, So in the bulletin, you'll see, uh, again, if you weren't here the past few weeks, we did cancel the VBS week-long event. However, we are looking at doing a VBS Family Day and Back to School event. We will get more details uh, to you guys in the upcoming uh, weeks here as we start getting that all planned out. The Ladies Bible Study, Psalms 23, is starting this Wednesday night. We want to encourage all the ladies to come out to this seven-week DVD Bible study um, that will focus on Psalms 23, The Shepherd with Me. If you have any questions about that, please contact Mary Beth Romberger, her her information can be found in our phone directory. Family camping trip, uh, that information is still in there. Please contact Jason Ryan if you have any interest. Uh, Background checks, if you've been contacted by me or Mindy, please make sure that you get those done. If you need help of any kind, please contact me. I'll walk you through the process or I'll help you do it uh, in the office. And then finally, a work day. We do have uh, July 18th, this Saturday, a work day scheduled from 8 to 12. We got a few things around the property that we do need to take care of, from root weed pulling uh, to some trimming of trees here and there. Uh, so we can use everyone's help. Actually, if you looked as you came in, you'll see a giant pile of mulch out there or uh, tan bark to, to lay out in the playground again. We need help. Uh, so if you're willing to give up some time there Saturday morning, uh, please consider coming out to help us here at the church. Also, please be in prayer. July 18th is also a tractor pool event. So we want to encourage everyone to please be in prayer this week, not only for safety for the event, for weather for the event, but also we have an awesome chance to share the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, with people all at that event. And so please be in prayer for Paul as he plans and puts that together, as well as for his staff. Um, One other thing, in, in our bulletin you'll see the LOL. Uh, The LOL, again, is our encouragement to you guys as a church throughout this whole year of uh, 2020 to be living out the love of Christ in practical ways to those around you. So we've been encouraging you every week with some practical idea of showing love to someone else. Uh, This week, we're going to encourage you to write a note to your local police department and to thank them for for their service. When we came up with that back in December, we thought, oh man, yeah, that's a great one because... Sometimes their job gets overlooked, and the truth of the matter is it's a hard job to have, especially nowadays. But the fact of the matter is we don't tend to think about police who keep us safe unless they're knocking on our window asking us for our license and registration. In that case, then, we don't really want that. Sorry, Todd, but no. (laughs) Uh, But the fact of the matter is we do want to encourage you to thank them, not only the police department, but really any civil servant, We want to encourage you to write a note to your fire department to thank them for their service and their duty that they're doing. This is just another way to show the love of Christ to those in your community. So we want to encourage you in that direction. The final announcement I have is just one. Continue to please be in prayer for the elders. Uh, as well as for the servants as we continue to make leadership decisions here at the church. Uh, The elders did meet this last week. We've been doing every every other week at this point. Um, The the rest of July at this point is going to be looking like modified services, so please be aware of that. But we do want to encourage you to please continue to pray for wisdom and discernment as we navigate some of these tough times. All right, with Modified Services, since we're not doing Sunday School, we've been doing kids' sermons up here during our services. We've been taking a look at our Gospel Project material. We've talked about the life of Jesus Christ, um, and we've been talking about uh, his miracles, and we just transferred last week into his teachings. And so we looked at the Sermon on the Mount through a video. The video was just an idea of just to help you see that Jesus said that the people who are part of his kingdom Live, act, think differently than everyone else. They're supposed to be the light and salt of the world. Today we're going to be talking about another concept that the people who follow Jesus, there's a cost to it. When you trust in Jesus Christ, it comes at a cost. And we're going to be taking a look at four different chapters in the Gospels today. Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 16, Luke chapter 9, and Luke 14. Don't worry, I'm not going to read all of those However, we are going to summarize these stories because they're very important. Jesus makes it very clear if you want to follow after him, there is a cost to think about. So large crowds, of course, traveled around with Jesus because he was doing miracles. They were amazed. They wanted food. and, And, of course, he had some disciples who would come up to him. And one came up to him and said, Teacher, I tell you what, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus told the man, The foxes have dens. Birds of the, of the sky have nests, yet the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple came up to him and said, Lord, I tell you what, I'll follow you, but first let me just go and bury my father. Jesus replied, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus told the people that following him was not going to be an easy thing. It would cost them quite a bit. Anyone who comes to me must be willing to leave his family you must love me most of all, more than your own life. Anyone who is unwilling to suffer cannot be my disciple. Jesus wanted to get this point across. In fact, he told them two stories or two parables. He said, think about this. If you wanted to build a tower, you would first sit down and you'd figured out the cost of what it would take to complete that tower. Otherwise, you'd begin the work and you'd realize you'd be unable to finish. And Then he says, everyone would laugh at you. Back then, it was foolishness to not complete a job there. And Jesus simply says, look, it's common sense. You want to buy a house? You want to build a house? You think about how much it's going to cost you, about what you can actually do. The next story he said is, think about it this way. If you were a king, you wouldn't go to war with another king without considering your army and figuring out if you have a great enough number to win the war. If you have too few many men to fight, I mean, a good king would send someone to go ask for peace before the battle even started. See, Jesus makes it very clear. We understand there's a cost to things. The fact of the matter is, have we thought through the cost? Jesus wanted the people to consider consider the cost of following him. He simply said it this way, If you are not willing to give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple, Jesus said. Following Jesus means giving him complete control of our life, putting him first. But it's not an easy process, and I'm sure many of you guys who are Christians here understand this. It's not always an easy thing to do, but it is worth it. The fact of the matter is giving up the things in this life here, the temporal things, is so much It's so worth it when we consider what we gain when we follow Jesus Christ. That's eternal life, forgiveness for sins, the hope of salvation in our life. Jesus said, whoever gives up his life for me will find it. What good is it to have everything you want in this world, to gain the whole world, yet give up your life before God? So see, Jesus taught people that following him was not an easy thing. It cost. It required commitment. It required sacrifice. But when we trust in Jesus, we give him complete control over our lives, and we find true life in him because he's the one who gave up his life to rescue us from sin and from death. And everything he has done has made it so much better and so worth it to give up the things in this life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for this day, and we thank you for all that, is that you have given to us, provided us with, blessed us with. Lord, I want to pray that as we continue together in our service today that you will work in our hearts and our minds. Help us to remember that following you does come at a cost. We are to put ourselves aside, put our wants aside, and put you first and foremost in our life. Lord, help us just to remember that making that decision... To trust and to follow you is completely worth it. That you have given us everything that we truly do need. And Lord, I just want to pray that as we continue to study your word today, as we continue to praise your name in song, that as you work in our hearts and our minds, that we will just remember that we need you every moment in this life. Be with us in the rest of our service here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: The Bible tells us pretty clearly that the wages of sin is death, the penalty that we rightly deserve for not measuring up to God's glory is eternal death and separation from Him uh, forever. But God is rich in love and mercy and sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. And I'd just like to read a couple of verses from Colossians this morning that are, I think, very encouraging for us. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus Christ bore the penalty for our sin, uh, and if we put our faith and trust in him, we can have hope of eternal uh, joy with him in heaven forever. That's what some of the themes in this last song uh, talk about. So let's stand and rejoice in that truth this morning.
1: The sin of man and wrath of God Has been on Jesus laid Silent as he stood accused Beaten, mocked, and scorned Bowing to the Father's will, he took a crown of thorns. though that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me soul oh, cries out hallelujah praise and honor the road. sin has no hold on me, whom the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. Now my debt is paid, it is paid in full, by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. The sun sets free, love is free indeed, on the rugged cross, my salvation.
2: again worship team. If you would take your Bibles, turn to Habakkuk chapter 1. We're going to be there this morning. If you don't know where Habakkuk is, that's okay. It's a small little book in the Old Testament. It's only three chapters long near the end but at the very beginning of your Bibles you have a table of contents. Feel free to glance at that if you need help. Uh, as I was preparing for today, uh, Paul and Faye are on vacation, so Paul asked me to step in and I thought, yeah, you know what, I'll use my the stuff that uh, we are doing a Bible study on. So uh, tomorrow night we actually begin the study of Habakkuk, and I thought that this, this first section here really honestly spoke for us for today. Uh, a couple of years ago when I began working here at Garden Chapel, Paul offered me a reference book or a, a book. Uh, to consider reading and adding to my library called uh, What on Earth is God Doing by Reynolds Showers. This book is about the, Satan's conflict with God, and really it's about the contention throughout all of history of what uh, is happening in the spiritual realm or the spiritual battles taking place. And of course, he's, he begins at the very beginning of creation uh, with the fall of Adam and Eve, and he goes through uh, the, re- the Reformation, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, Uh, modern times, and then of course he jumps to end times and looks at Revelation. I want to encourage this because this book is actually very helpful in our thinking about the bigger picture, what God is doing in all of history, and it really invites us to see his entire plan. And what I want to ask you simply is this, before we jump into Habakkuk and we start talking about it, I want to give you kind of an illustration to wrap your head around. You saw what? What is this up on the screen? A puzzle piece, right? Okay, good. Yeah, and uh, can you tell a lot about the puzzle from this puzzle piece? Some Elijah's thinking. Yeah, I got this one. Elijah, what's on the puzzle piece? Okay, Paw Patrol. Yeah, see, you missed your chance, man. Yeah, Paw Patrol. So you can kind of see that some of the details are there, but do you know who's actually in the puzzle? You, you know, maybe a little bit, but do you know everyone? Do you know what the puzzle actually is a picture of? No, right? What, what do we also know from this one puzzle piece? This puzzle piece is a corner. corner, right? And whenever you start a puzzle, you always start at the corners. That's right, yeah. And I actually tried to pick like the most obscure puzzle piece, but all of them had designs on I thought this one did a good job. anyhow. But yeah, do you know, like, really, the next two puzzle pieces, do you know what those are going to look like? Not really. You know that they're going to have a insert tab there, right? But you don't really know what the design is going to be, what the color is going to be, what kind of face maybe the characters are making. You don't really know a whole lot. And what happens is in life, we tend to focus on our life. And our life can tend to be like this puzzle piece. And we look at it and we say, this is really kind of like all there is. But we forget that no, there's a much bigger picture than just my single life. See, Jesus makes it very clear in the New Testament our, our lives are like grass that it's here one day and withers or the flowers that are grow one day and then die. You know, We're very temporary. And sometimes we, we just think in our temporary sense, our, our singular puzzle piece. And we have to remember, and today's lesson is going to be that there's a much bigger picture, and God wants us to see the bigger picture of what's going on. And Habakkuk deals with this where he's looking at his puzzle piece. He goes, God, what are you doing here in my life? I want an answer, and God answers them, and he says, no, take a step back. And we'll see Habakkuk's reaction to that. So if you turn there, Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we're going to read that right off bat, and then we're going to take that apart. Because this is Habakkuk's uh, complaint or his questions. And so it simply says here, O oh Lord, how long are, do I, shall I cry for help and you not hear? Or cry to you violence and you not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the laws paralyze; paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. The ju- or So justice goes forth perverted. We see here right off bat that Habakkuk has some complaints. And we need to understand the background of this book a little bit to understand what he's talking about. Habakkuk was written around 640 to 615 B.C., right after the book of Nahum and right during the time of Jeremiah. The ten southern tribes of Israel have been taken into captivity by the evil nation of Assyria. This was God's judgment on them. And so they've been pulled out of the land and new people have been placed in there. The two southern tribes of Judah have been conquered by Assyria, kind of. They were uh, pillaged to the point of really just everything was destroyed. And Assyria literally had their thumb pressed down on Israel, or on Judah. And Judah's kings were going back and forth between being godly kings and evil kings. And at this point in time in Habakkuk's writing, Jehoiakim, or Jehoiachin, depending on uh, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, whichever one you're reading there, comes into play. Now, Jehoiakim is a very significant king, one that we have to know kind of a little bit about. His name can actually be found in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogies of Jesus Christ. And to understand why his name is even placed there is because of what happens in history. He's an evil king. Jeremiah literally writes him a letter, or writes him from God a letter to be read and to be followed. And Jehoiakim takes that letter, that scroll, rips it up and burns it. And then he tells his army, you're going to find Jeremiah and his scribe and you're going to kill him. That's it. We're done with this. And he turns against God and his rebellious heart actually leads him, or well, actually causes God to do something very unique. Does anyone know what God has actually done to Jehoiakim or Jehoiachin? Anyone want to take a guess? I preached this a long time ago at Christmas. God actually curses him and says, never again will your sons sit on the throne of David. Which is why Jesus Christ didn't come through the line of Joseph, right? Because otherwise he'd be a seed from Jehoiakim. But there's a reason why Jesus comes through Mary's line and inherits the blessing or inherits the kingship of the firstborn son through Joseph. Now, our Bible study group's going to hammer that out a little bit more tomorrow night. But the fact of the matter is that this king is so bad that God curses him to tell him, your sons aren't going to sit on this throne anymore. Okay. Well, when the king behaves evil or wickedly in the nation of Israel, what also tends to happen? It's okay. It's 11 o'clock. You guys should be be awake on this one. Okay, the people of Israel, they they tend to follow their king. So if the king's evil, the people of Israel tend to do evil. Yeah, okay, right? And so the problem is all of this stuff is taking place and Habakkuk has some complaints. And so let's take a look at the questions he asks God. First off, he simply says, God, how long shall I cry to you and you not hear So he's simply saying, God, are you ignoring me? Do you even care that I'm crying out to you? Did God actually hear his prophet? Habakkuk wants to know. The second question is, hey, how long do I have to cry violence and you not save? Whether this is violence against him, or whether it's just violence happening in the nation of Israel. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is he's simply saying, I cry about the violence, yet you're doing nothing, God. Why is it? Then he goes on. He has another one. Why do you make me see iniquity? Essentially, he's simply saying, look, there's evil, there's deceit, clarity, idols, all these bad things are happening in our land, God. Why are these things even happening? They shouldn't be a part of God's people. They shouldn't be a part of this land it leads into the last question. Why do you idly look at wrong? Or some translations will simply put it this way. Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? So God's prophet wants to know, God, why are all these bad things happening in the land and you're not doing anything? Why are you not acting? And the thing is, these questions that Habakkuk, Habakkuk has are not really new questions to us. If you go through Scripture, you know that people deal with these things all the time. The book of Psalms, David writes very much the same questions in many of his Psalms. Why do you allow my enemies to overtake me, God? Why is it that you allow the wicked to prosper, God? Even through Job, Job wrestles with questions like these. And then even in the New Testament, we see some of these things lived out, where the evil religious leaders are allowed to kill the Messiah. Why is it that evil is allowed to happen How comes God doesn't work? And the fact of the matter is, even in today, over the last couple months, we've all probably been a little discouraged and disheartened because of the things we've seen on TV, the things that we're wrestling with, that we're grappling with. Not only illness and sickness around the world, but we're talking about riots and protests, we're talking about um, violence against other people, we're talking about just pure lawlessness. And we're wondering, God, why why do you see everything that's going on in our country and you're just not doing anything? But you do understand this isn't a new thing. It's happened before all throughout history. And guess what? It's probably going to keep happening until Christ returns. The fact of the matter is we wonder sometimes, God, why aren't you doing anything? And it's because here we're looking at our little puzzle piece. We're looking at this and saying, God, I just don't see you working here in my life. I don't see you working the way I think you should be working. Why aren't you dealing with this? And God actually, what makes this book unique is God responds to Habakkuk's complaints to his questions, and he answers them. And so let's take a look. That leads us into this next section here. Oh, sorry, before we jump to the next section, I forgot about this. The, Habakkuk simply says, because you're allowing violence, God, because you're allowing these bad things to happen, here is the result of it. So what does he say? He says, look, since God's not working, the law is not working, justice is not working, that whole system is just messed up. The wicked surround the righteous, they're gathering around, they're holding the righteous in place, and they're perverting justice, which means simply to distort or to make false by the virtue. The very core concept of justice doesn't really exist anymore because, God, you're not doing anything. I think these are pretty bold questions and a very bold complaint from a prophet. And so God gives him a bold answer. One that kind of blows his mind. One that's going to shock him. So let's take a look. Verses 5 through 6 here. God's answer is really through the rest of the chapter, but we're just going to take a look at these first two verses. It says here, Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days, that you would not believe if I told you, for behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breath of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. God's going to continue on and and compare, or really show what these Chaldeans look like. But God gives Sebaka an answer, one that really blows his mind. Because what does he say? He says, Look among the nations. Look bigger, Habakkuk. I'm not working in your, la- your little puzzle piece, that's all, all you're looking at. Look a little bigger, and you'll clearly see me working. So, what does he do? He says, Look bigger. And he tells him, Look at the nations, be wondered, or, be, or wonder and be astounded. This idea of wonder simply means to be astonished, stunned, or surprised. The reason I have those, those pictures and, and that emoji up there is because this word is written in an intensive form. So it's literally just, I, w- I want to shock you. I want to make your jaw drop. I'm going to blow your mind by what I'm just about to tell you. See, Habakkuk, if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe it. So let me just give you a little bit of the picture. And So what does he do? He tells them, I'm working in the other nations. Now that should have been a surprise to Habakkuk. Because back then, you see, the ancient world had this idea that when you had land or governments against land and governments and armies, it wasn't just armies fighting and battling it out. It really was gods. Their god was really against your god. And we see that back in in David. David makes that very clear. Goliath says, you know, he calls out, the God of the Israelites, that he's small and that he's impowerful. He's, uh, um, impowerful? Is that the right word? That's not the right word. He's weak. There we go. <laughs> the fact of the matter is David says, no, that's, that's ridiculous. God will give me the strength to overcome this. See, their tension was that they thought, well, because Assyria had won, clearly maybe their God was bigger than theirs. And Yahweh's making it very clear and reminding his prophet it's not how it works. I'm the only one true living God. Guess what? I'm in control, not of just your nation, Habakkuk, but I'm in control of what? Someone said it. Danielle, thank you. Everything. All of creation is his. He is in control. It's what makes Proverbs 21.1 1, like one of those powerful verses. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. That's really what's being shown to Habakkuk here. I'm using the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk's going to complain about the Chaldeans. And here's why. Because God pretty much tells him, I'm going to use the worst people you can think of as tools for what I'm about to do. And so he says the Chaldeans. Now, who are the Chaldeans? The Chaldeans are simply the Babylonians. Assyria and the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, was going to be destroyed. Nahum is a a great complement book to the book of Habakkuk because Nahum tells the people God's going to destroy Assyria. He's going to literally obliterate it. There's going to be nothing left. Habakkuk tells us how he's going to do that. He's going to use the Babylonians. And, of course, the Babylonians are very proud. They're selfish people. And what happens here is he describes them, and he simply says, look, they're a bitter nation. That means they're pugnant. They're anguished, despairing, poisonous, fiercely violent. They're not nice people to be around. You would think that the people God would use would be loving and kind, peaceable. But no, God's using what kind of seems like evil people. He also describes them as hasty. God himself describes them as a hasty, impetuous, rash, fearful. They hurry, they do, do quickly. What, simply what it means is they live by impulse. They want it, they do it. That's how they live. That's how they govern. And it simply says, he goes on, it says, they're marching the breath of the earth. They would rise up and simply take over the known world. They're going to take over the Assyrian empire. And then lastly, he describes them as, they seized dwellings, not their own. If you continue on, you're going to read that these people are fierce. Assyria was bad. Jonah didn't want to go to Assyria because Assyria was violent. They were oppressive. But God actually describes the Babylonians as worse. And Habakkuk, at the end of this, in the rest of his book, kind of wonders, God, why are you doing this? What's going on? Now, I'm just going to jump real quick. He's going to simply say, hey, Lord, I understand you're eternal. You're the righteous God. But what in the world? Why would you choose to use evil people to judge an evil nation and your people? And God answers, answers them. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up and upright within him. He's speaking of the Babylonians there, simply saying, look, these people are prideful, yes. But Habakkuk, that doesn't neutralize what you're supposed to do. The righteous shall live by faith, or by his faith. The idea is simply, dis- despite who's governing you, who's ruling over you, You're supposed to live by faith, Habakkuk. And he goes on and he simply tells Habakkuk, look, Babylon's not going to get away with the wrongs that they commit. They're not going to get away with their unrighteousness, their wickedness, their evil. I'm going to judge them too. Habakkuk, at the end of his book, if you jump to chapter 3, writes a prayer and a praise to God for what God has answered to him. He simply says that this, Habakkuk 3, verse 2, simply says, O oh Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. O oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Simply this, Habakkuk realizes his questions at the beginning showed that he lacked an understanding of who God is or, or he forgot about who God is. And God's response to him helped him remember, no, I serve a God who doesn't just work in my puzzle piece. He works in all of creation. He works in all of the world. He's he's doing much more stuff than just in my life. He's dealing with all of this. And so it calls him to fear, that idea of just simple respect, reverence. You remember who it is you're working for, who it is that is above you. But then you jump down to verses 17, 18, and 19. His praise that he writes to God. And this is key for how we respond to situations in life. Verse 17 says it this way. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from their folds, and there be no herds in their stalls. Okay, let me ask you, what is he painting a picture of? Famine, good. What else? Not just famine. Emptiness, desolation. There's no flocks, there's no herds, there's no nothing. And Habakkuk says, when the land is desolate, when there's nothing going on, everything looks horrible. Look at his response, 18, 19. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, and He makes me tread on high places. So Habakkuk ends his book with simply this While everything looks horribly wrong, who am I going to trust in? Okay, this is, I'm going to need you to speak up a little bit. God. Yeah, good, right? Okay, why is that? Because his salvation is found in God. Is God able to protect him? Yes. Is God able to take the desolate land, the lifeless land, and bring life to it? The answer is yeah. We see that all throughout Scripture. That is what God does. He takes things that we think are hopeless and brings hope out of them. And Habakkuk reminds himself, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. So when the tough times come, what does he say? I'll I'll, I'll turn to God. I'll trust in him. He'll get me through this. And not only that, what he writes is what? You'll make my feet like the deer. So the question is, well, what do deer do? Okay, I know I have hunters in here, right? Joe, what do deer do? Sure-footed? They, they what? When they run, they hop, run, jump. Okay, question. If God's going to make our feet like the deer's feet, that means we're going to be jumping. When do you jump? Do you jump when you feel sad and miserable and depressed? No. You jump when you're happy or joyful. That's why the phrase is called jump for joy. There you go. You guys got it. Okay. Yeah. So even though everything is desolate, plain, empty, hopeless, Habakkuk says, I'll turn to God. God will give me strength and he'll bring me joy so that I can find hope in these troubled times. So that I could tread upon the high grounds. He'll take me out of these depressing situations because of who he is and I I remember, I'll trust in him. That's key, because when we go back to Habakkuk chapter 1 and we look at his questions and God's answer, things look bad, things look horrible. And Habakkuk has to remind himself, no, I need to trust in God. So the principle we see here today in this passage is simply this, that we are to trust that God sees and knows what's happening and that his plans are being carried out. See, there's no doubt that God is working. But Habakkuk thought, man, God, maybe you're on vacation, maybe you're idle. I don't know what you're doing, but you're missing all this stuff. And God's saying, no, 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 no. I see it all. I know what's going on. But I have a plan. And it's much bigger than what you realize. So here are just some of the points that make up that idea. Simply this, one, nothing escapes God's sight even when we think it does. Habakkuk thought the violence, the cruelty, the lawlessness was escaping God. God knew it all already, and he was working on it. The fact of the matter is the New Testament brings it into this principle. What was done in the darkness will be made light, be brought to light. Nothing escapes God's sight, and God will reveal it all one day. And he'll also judge it all one day. And we need to remember that. The second thing, God's plan is set and will be carried out. That's why I love Ephesians chapter 1, because it makes it very clear from the beginning, from the foundations of the world, God had had this plan to rescue us in Jesus Christ. So that means when kids ask the question, well, did God know Adam and Eve were going to sin? The answer is, yes, he did. Did he already have a plan to save them? Yes, that should bring us hope. Because why? His plan is in place. Can anything distort his plan? The answer is no. See, and that's why I like the Reynolds Showers book, because there's, it paints that tension of Satan trying to disrupt, trying to attack God's plan, trying to distort God's plan. But is he ever successful in destroying God's plan? No. How do I know that? Because when you read the rest of the Bible, you understand God already has shown us the whole plan. And he says, let me tell you exactly how it's going to all end so that you can be sure that it is going to happen so this passage simply reminds us God's plan is set. It will be carried out. But the problem is sometimes we just need to look bigger. The third thing, there's no reason really to fear the wicked. See, Habakkuk was concerned that these people were getting away with all the violence, with all the oppression, with all of the, 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 the strife, the enmity, the destruction that they're doing. He thought, God, you're just missing it all. The answer is no. This passage reminds us God sees it all. He'll deal with it all. There's no reason to fear the wicked. In fact, it's one reason why I think in Romans chapter 12, it's so key for the apostle Paul to write for personal believers, their responsibilities of how we interact with people. He says, as far as it be on your part, be at peace with everyone, right? But then he says, don't repay evil for evil. He says, that's not your job. He says what? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. God says, I'll deal with that. And then right after that quote comes in in Paul, Paul says, no, but instead instead of evil, do good. And then he tells you what to do. And that's some real tension. I mean, how can we even hold to that idea? It's because we know that God will deal with the wicked. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't step in when we can to stop evil from happening. But the idea is simply that we go to our highest authority, we go to the highest person we know who can absolutely handle the situation and we turn it over to him, especially in our lives. It's why Peter can even go in First Peter, say, Hey, Lord, or sorry, Christians, count it all joy when you suffer. It's, it's better to suffer for righteousness' sake than for the evil's sake. Oh yeah, by the way, count that a blessing that you're suffering for Christ. Paul says the same thing in a very similar manner. But then we see it lived out in Acts. I mean, you think about it this way. When they're stoning Stephen, who all he is doing is preaching Jesus Christ, as they're killing him, he looks up, he sees Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. And he utters a phrase that probably would never come out of our mouths when evil is attacking us. Which is what? Father, forgive them. In fact, it's what Jesus Christ utters on the cross to the people crucifying him. Why in the world could they have that attitude, that mind perspective, that when I'm suffering and evil is getting away, it seems to be getting away with it, God, how can I even say forgive them? Because why? Does evil really get away with it? No, it may seem like it, but does God overlook that? No. No. He will call to account everything one day. The wicked don't get away with it. In fact, he may be judging the wicked, just not in a way that we see. The next thing, and the last point here in this principle is simply this. We need to look bigger than our life and our puzzle piece. Habakkuk was focused on his country, his kingdom, what was going on in his life. And God says, no, I need you to look bigger because I'm doing a much bigger work. And in fact, the problem is, is because as humans, we have a limited mindset. We have limited vision. We don't know it all. We don't see it all. And The fact of the matter is we have to trust God that his plan is bigger. But sometimes we do need to look outside of our life to see him working. Now, the next thing we want to do is how does this apply to our life? So let's just talk about some application today. First off, when things are worrisome, when things are troubling, when times are chaotic, Who is it that you're going to trust in? Now, I want to encourage you today, this passage tells us we should trust in God that He knows and that He cares, that He knows what's going on in your life. Rely upon Him because He cares for you. But see, the thing is we start to complain, we start to question God when things aren't going the way we think they should go. When we're not in control. And see, the thing is, when we trust in God, it's saying, "No, oh God, we know that you are in control and that you'll take care of this. The second principle is simply this. We need to remember that God works in bigger ways than we can understand or see. Sometimes that'll cause us to drop our jaw. It'll shock us. Sometimes we need to just take a step back from our piece of life and look bigger. What's God doing in all the world, in all of history? Sometimes we need to go back to the Bible and remember the whole story of what God's already shown us. Because sometimes we try to interpret the times the way we see the times going. It's like this. My, let's go back to that puzzle piece idea. When we start teaching V how to put together puzzles, we tell him, here's a corner piece, start with this one and try to match Okay. Well, he would just take the first piece he took and what? Try to jam it into it, Right? He didn't quite get how a puzzle would work. So he's just trying to force his puzzle piece into the puzzle piece that's there. I see, we try to force our interpretations into what's going on and we forget to rely upon God and look at his plan, do things his way. We try to do things our way and it doesn't work out. The last one, or the third one here, is that the wicked will be dealt with by God. When evil comes up in our world, when it just seems like unfairness is ruling, who are we going to trust in? Who are we going to lean to? Do we truly believe that God sees it all? Do we trust in him? And do we do what he has required us to do? See, that's why I think Habakkuk 2.4 is so important here. The righteous will live by faith. Because what he's simply saying is, despite who's over you, despite what's going on, you're supposed to continue to live out your faith, to do what I have called you to do. And we see that all throughout the New Testament. And then the last thing is simply this, that our focus needs to be on things above and on the bigger picture. Colossians 3, 1 through 2, uh, Will had read something earlier from there. But it simply says it this way, if then you have been raised with Christ, so those of us who have trusted in Christ, who believe in Him, who have placed our faith in Him, will be raised with Him, He says, if you're in Christ, here's what you do. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of this earth. So here the Apostle Paul is simply telling us, don't be so focused on the temporal things right now. Remember, there's a bigger picture. There's something bigger going on. And you need to set your mind on the heavenly things to continue to live the way God has called you to live, to continue to share the gospel, because that's what's truly what's important, to share with others what Jesus Christ has done. I mean, we've all been called to do a heavenly mission, to go into all the world to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them and to teach them, to observe all the things that Christ has commanded us to do and to observe. But the problem is sometimes we just get limited. We focus on the temporal, and we get distracted. So with today, I just want to simply end with this, with a question. When trouble does come up in your life, what are you going to do? Maybe it's trouble at home. Maybe it's trouble in society, culture. Maybe it's trouble just in your interpersonal life. You're wrestling with some sin issues. Who are you going to turn to? What are you going to do? Are you going to trust in God? Are you going to turn to him, trusting that he'll give you the strength to not only deal with the problems, but to find joy in your life? Or simply this, are you going to kind of trust in your own self and in your own understanding of what's happening? Are you going to complain and question if God's even working in your life anymore? I want to pray that you all think about this, that we don't jump like Habakkuk kind of did, and complained to God, God, just why aren't you working? That we just take a step back and we see the bigger picture of what he's doing in our life. Let's close in order prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for this book of Habakkuk. Even though it's a short, small book, Lord, it brings a lot of truth to life. Lord, first we have to confess that we have such a limited view in our life. That we get distracted and focused on temporal things when we need to be focused on your kingdom and on the things above. Father, forgive us for those things. Help us just to remember that we do have a limited understanding as human beings. We're not all-knowing, but you are, God. That when we turn to you and we seek answers from you that you will answer, you'll show us the right way. And that our response is to ultimately to trust in you and to continue to do what you have asked us to do, to live the way you want us to live. And Lord, there's a lot of chaos going on, not only out in the world today, but in our own lives. And Lord, I pray that when, when troubling times come up, when we get discouraged, depressed, disheartened, that we will turn to you, that we will trust in you no matter what, Lord. As we go out from here today, God, I pray that you just continue to work in our hearts and our minds. Remind us of these truths throughout this week. Help us to be the living examples and the living hope that this world needs. Help us to show the joy that you cause in our life. And help us to share that joy with others. Lord, be with us as we go out from here today. and We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a great rest of your Sunday. and Go with God.